0: Tov, Good evening. We are continue. We're continuing our study of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's introduction to the third volume of his Ketar Tov, The Shattered Wall of Israel. We're taking apart episode by episode of infighting and separation in the Jewish community. Today shiur was dedicated the Fuhatoshamah to the speedy recovery of my uncle. Uh, Daniel he should have a complete recovery, return home to his wife who's with us here, and uh, to his kihila. We are waiting for him, B'zalat and to the rest of his family and friends. The next episode we're discussing is a discussion around the tzedukim, Tzedokim. Sadokim, a number of different pronunciations, otherwise known in English as the Sadducees. Before I share anything that I'm going to share today, we have to share some historical background. And that's important. It says in the Torah, "Zichru yimot olam binu shenot dor You must remember the days of old. You have to ponder. Binu, it's not just enough to remember, also to think about it, to analyze it. The commentaries on the Pasuk there, share that we must learn lessons for the future from mistakes of the past. If things happen to Ammi misrael then we have an obligation, not just to remember history for the sake of history, but to remember history for the sake of the present and definitely for the future. And that's exactly what we do here in the Yishioim. We're discussing these topics because every episode that happened to Ami misrael in our history of division and infighting has relevance to similar parallel issues that are going on in the Jewish community today. As so we discussed in the past on page, I believe it's eight or nine in your PDF, but it's the Roman numeral 11. So there's a PDF, it says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, uh, Keter Shem one to 30. So you wanna be in that PDF, it's attached to the Zoom invitation, it's also attached to The winter materials in any Google Classroom's classwork section. So the first episode we discussed was Mamlechet, Israel Nifradam Yehuda, the separation of the Kingdom of Israel, the Kingdom of Yehuda. We then spent last week discussing much about the Samaritans, the Shomoneim, and their struggles with the Jewish community. We touched on right before we finished on a group known as the Yisins. The Essenes, who were a pious group of individuals, we discussed them in the writings of Philo and Josephus. And today this brings us to the tzedokim. Tzedokim, however you wish to say the word. In letter Dalet on Roman numeral 11. The early tzedokim. Now, why we say early tzedokim? Because there are going to be groups later in history, we're going to discuss them. For example, the Karaim, the Kerites, who bear resemblance to the Tziduqim, but they are not tziduqim. So Tzidokim are their own group of people, whereas Karaim are also their own independent group of people. And they are separated by many, many, many years and many other episodes in history, and we'll get to them in time. But the early Tzidokim, Bimei Habayit in the times of the second Ben Mikdash, meha mehapurushim. They separated themselves from the purushim. Who are the purushim? What do we call them in English? Us. Yeah, that's us. But what do you call them? You've heard the word before. You just probably have no idea. When... Pharisees. Very good. We are Pharisees. Uh-huh. But the Pharisees, that term pretty much disappeared in use. Why? The Jewish people have no use for the word. Because pretty much after the the destruction of the Second Temple, which we'll discuss, uh, pretty much after Ba'it the groups that were surrounding the Pharisees, the Piloshim, the Tzedukim, the Yisins, all of these groups pretty much fell by the wayside. They disappeared. And there's theories as to why that happened, when it happened. I'm going to discuss that soon. But ultimately the word Piloshim is maintained really only in one culture, and that's in where? Where do you find the word Pharisees very often? There's one breakaway sect that began in the times of the Second Christians. The The Christians, very good, all over the New Testament. And by the way, if you wanna see some pretty vile things about Jewish people, just run a search in the New Testament with the word Pharisees. You're too curious, so just check out Matthew 23 or something like that. You'll see some wonderful things, scribes and Pharisees, all kinds of delightful teachings that of course did not contribute to anti-Semitism throughout Jewish history. And so we don't use the word Pilushim pretty much because we are perushim and we were the only Jews left. By the way, there's a similar history, if I can draw a parallel. Many of you are familiar perhaps with Chabad Lubavitch. It's a Jewish movement and, and uh, you know, subcategory. I see some of you saying, no, of course you are. And Chabad Lubavitch is really synonymous. Chabad and Lubavitch are the same thing. Chabad being an ideology surrounding the first Lubavitch Arabia, of blessed memory, Bashnir Zalman of Liadi, and Lubavitch being an actual geographic location. It's a city, I don't even know if it's a city, a village, a town, I don't know exactly what it was, it wasn't there. And you sometimes wonder why Chabad Lubavitch, as opposed to what? And the truth is that in the history of Chabad Hasidut, there are many breakaways. Are you he- not hearing me well? Lilinaz? I do quite well. Okay, so then... No, no, Sarah, Sarah, if you want to disconnect and join, that might solve the problem. Okay, I'll try that in a minute. No problem, perfect. So there were many breakaways from the Chabad Hasidic sect. So for example, the most famous of them is perhaps the first Lubavitcher Rebbe student who felt that the son who succeeded the first Lubavitch Rebbe was not authentic to his father's teachings, or was simply not well versed enough to continue his father's legacy. And that created a split. And you have other Chabad groups like Kapust and others that pretty much are wiped out in the Holocaust. So we don't have any descendants of theirs, at least not uh, theologically, and Chabad Lubavitch was the only surviving branch of the Chabad Hasidut, And so it's very convenient today post the Holocaust to claim, you know, Chabad is a movement and there were seven rebbeis, and these are the seven rebbeis, and they started here and they end here, but really it's not accurate. It's simply the history being told by those who survived, as opposed to the history being told by those who didn't. Uh, the same thing seemingly happens to Am Yisrael, which is we're broken up in the times of the second B'day Hash, between Pharisees, Pirushim, and uh, Tzidokim, and uh, Baitusim, and early Christians, and all kinds of other groups. And we are the ones who survived to tell the story. So it's obvious that our story is told with a bias towards ourselves. Let's just be aware of that. That we are telling the story as if we are the Jewish people, and these are all groups that broke away from us. And we discussed last week that the Shomronim, for example, the Samaritans would beg to differ. Nifredu <laughs> So they separated themselves from the Pharisees. Now the Tzedukim will swear to you that it's the other way around. They didn't separate themselves from anybody. It's the Pharisees who invented a rabbinic law that separated themselves from the rest of the Jewish people. But this is our history being told through our lens. One of the hallmarks of the tzidukim, which we'll discuss in depth soon, is that they denounced, they didn't believe in the revival of the dead, the world to come, Mashiach, similar ideas, and that's a very integral part of their faith. And they don't believe either in reward and consequences. And this sentence of gemul and onish is going to bring about with it an entire conversations surrounding who founded the Tzeduchim, where did they come from, who was the rabbi, why are they important? And I really, if I could tell you, that all of the sects that we spoke about until now, especially the Essenes and the Sadducees, they are guilty of only one thing, and they're guilty of creating Pirushim. They're guilty of creating, if I could borrow for lack of a better word, They're guilty of creating Orthodox Judaism the way you and I see it today. And I left you off with that note last week. And I told you that today, through the lens of this conversation, we're going to discuss some major problems that face the Jewish community today, especially the variety that is known as Orthodox. And all of it can be traced back to this tragic episode in history, which is Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's fourth example of separation in infighting in the Jewish people. So I mentioned to you the Tzedukim. I mentioned to you that they were a movement that starts around the times of the 2nd Temple. mikdash I mentioned to you that some of their main tenets of their faith are that they don't believe in the next world, they don't believe in reward and consequences, they don't believe in Tichiat HaMetim, the revival of the dead, and other concepts which are unique to Pirushi, or uh, Pharisee Rabbinic Judaism. Now those term Pharisees and Rabbinic Judaism, if you want it to be correct, you can actually split those into further categories. There's the pelushim, and then there's rabbinic Judaism that comes out of there, but for the sake of today's conversation, I'm going to use pelushim and rabbinic Jews as the same thing. The tzidukim belong to the group of kohanim, so if you've been following my Rambam's Mishnah Torah class, we're right now discussing the founding of the Anche Knesset the Gedona, the men of the great assembly who are the chachamim spearheaded by Ezra, Ezra Hasofer, who's a kohen, Ezra overthrows his brethren, the Kohanim, because he views them to be part of a corrupt Jewish leadership and replaces the Kohanim as teachers of the Torah with the Chachamim who carry on the baton of the Torah. This is an internal revolution that affects almost everything we do in Judaism today. For those who are not familiar with that Rambam class, if you just want episodes 39, 40, 41, and last night's 42, are discussing this entire topic at great length. Why do we find so many separations in this period of Jewish history? So we've had infighting before, but something seems to happen around this period in which the Jewish people blow into pieces. We, we start fragmenting up, and by the way, every one of these denominations have their own subcategories. So tzedukim possibly have their own subcategories of tzedukim, the same with pirushim. We're gonna discuss next week that the pirushim have their own breakaway groups. You may be familiar with them. They're who the rabbis blame as responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. They're a group of zealous Pharisees, and they decide to revolt and to make problems, and ultimately that's what our rabbis blame, the destruction of the bit of So what happened? What happened that led to all of this infighting? There are a number of different scholarly opinions, but I'll share just a few of them. The first, I think, is important to understand that all of this is happening right after Judaism interacts strongly with Greek culture. So this is the period of Hellenism. This is the story of Chanukah. So Chanukah wrecks its havoc. Yes, we build a bed Midrash. Yes, we overthrow the enemy foreign forces. Yes, all of that happens. But there are side effects, multi-generational traumas, if you wish to call them, that lead to major problems in Am Yisrael. The first and foremost being the exposure of the Jewish people to foreign ideologies. And Jews like to try to get their foreign ideologies to mix in with their natural ideologies. And ultimately you have Jews that are exploring other avenues of thought, of philosophy, ways of life. And now the Jewish community has to struggle with that. The Jewish community is trying to put together, so what do we believe? We're not Jewish anymore, we're Jewish and. And this becomes a major crisis, and different Jewish groups deal with that in different ways. I think after the destruction of, uh, in this time period of the second bit of Mikdash, you have a rebellion. This rebellion that pretty much saves the Jewish people leads to a certain, a certain revolution, kind of like if you're familiar with Israeli history, what happens after the Six-Day War and the success of the Six-Day War. All kinds of religious movements start to break out in Israel, a messianic fervor starts to take over the country. Many of the things that we hear today in what they call the Kirov world and the ills of that community can be directly traced back to the euphoria that happens after the Six-Day War. There also is one more major factor, and that is, who is in charge of the Jewish people is very much dictated by who controls which region of the state of Israel. What is the capital of the Jewish people? Okay, I'm glad we got that answer. Yerushalayim is the capital of the Jewish people, very good. And which part of Yerushalayim is the most important part of Yerushalayim, not just religiously, but also politically for the Jewish people? Very good, the Temple Mount, the ben Dash. The Temple Mount is crucial. If we discussed last week, the Samaritans, the Shomronim, trying to get the Temple destroyed, that's part of a play to control the destiny of the Jewish people, or at least be in charge, be a major player on the board of the Jewish people. When you find other episodes that are connected to the Beit HaMikdash, you see that people are in a power struggle. Who controls the Beit HaMikdash, dictates, who leads the Jewish people? And by the way, ultimately for the Samaritans, it didn't work out well because they had their Beit HaMikdash, their temple in Har Gerizim destroyed after that unfortunate episode. And so here you have other groups of Jews that are fighting primarily because they want political power. They want to control the Jewish community. And here it's important to jump into the writings of Josephus. Josephus who lives in this time period. Josephus shares with us the numbers. So what what number of Jews are we talking about? The percentages of populations. According to Josephus, in that first century, there were tzeddokim, but only a handful of them. Some numbers, Uh, say, maybe a a couple hundred. Not very many. A few hundred Tzeduki. Compare that to the Essenes, which we spoke about last week. The Essenes are about a population of 4,000. The Pirushim, who are the Pharisees, they're around 6,000 members. And then may or may not include that fourth category that I mentioned to you earlier of the Zealots. Those Zealots have many names. Zealots, uh, this, in, there's a word for it in, in you know, Latin, but the Sikrikim, the Sakurai maybe they call them, uh, you have a, the, a few different names that this group is referred to, but a subcategory of the Pharisees some call it the Philosophia Haraviit, the fourth philosophy that was in the Jewish people and there may have been other little categories, but these were the major breakdown so the Tzidukim were in the minority so how did the Tzidukim become so influential the answer is quite simple they were Kohanim. The Tzedukim were Kohanim. That Tzedukim were not just Kohanim, but they are descended from the Kohen Gadol in Jerusalem. And for this period in Jewish history, the Kohen Gadol is almost exclusively chosen from the family of Tzedukim. And because of this, the Tzedukim, though they are small in number, are very great in influence. And more than they're great in influence, if you are Kohanim and you are in charge of the Bed Mikdash, you have a steady flow of what coming to the ben Mikdash? Money, money. Money makes the world go round. The tzedukim are kohanim. Everyone has to bring offerings to the bed of Mikdash. Everybody has to donate in the bed of Mikdash. Everybody does something in the bed of Mikdash. I, you know, they are saying in Hebrew, bal ha me'ahu bal ha The one who has the, the money is the one who decides everything. The tzedukim are a tremendously powerful group of people, not because of their numbers, but because of their money. Their influence and the fact that they control the Bermikdash. This makes them tremendous allies for the occupying forces who are in Israel at this time because the Tzedekim are the ruling class and because of that they get along very well with the government in order to preserve their autonomous power over the Jewish people. Like the Yisins, after the second Bermikdash, the group of Tzedekim pretty much disappeared from the face of history. So we don't really have Tudukim surviving the Ben-Mikdash. I'm not talking biologically as much as theologically or philosophically. And the reason seems to be quite simple. Why would it be that after the destruction of the Ben-Mikdash, the Tudukim disappear? The know, this... Very good. Their headquarters. Yeah, from the majority. Their headquarters fell apart. They don't have a way to collect money anymore. Really, their entire lifestyle revolves around the Ben-Mikdash, now there is no ben what do they have left? This is the moment when Christians begin to talk to you about the blood of Yeshu because you don't have a ben anymore. The rabbis were already preparing for this in the times of Islam. The rabbis were already decentralizing Judaism away from the ben They were moving people away from the ben to keep them away from the corruption of the Kohanim but also to ensure that in the event where the Ben-Mikdash gets pulled again, and that's ultimately what happens, the Jewish people have what to live on, they have what to rely on, they have what to do. And ultimately, it's the rabbi's ability to adapt. It's adaptability, really. Their ability to adapt is what ultimately saves the Pirushim and causes them to be the branch of Judaism that survives this entire episode. I think if there's lesson number one we have to walk away with that is that unlike the stereotype today of rabbis, rabbis in their very essence, the original Pharisees were capable of all kinds of adaptability. And so they weren't stubborn, they definitely weren't unorthodox. They did all kinds of unorthodox things in order to ensure the continuity of the Jewish people and the Torah of the Jewish people. Something that their counterparts in other sects of Judaism were unable to do. Because when you have a really rigid branch and you twist it, it's going to snap, it's going to break. A blade of grass lasts a little bit longer. The trap, yes. If I can just say one thing. Please. Um, it's also, I'm trying to look it up now in, in Tanakh, but I believe that when. Shlomo Amelik is giving the inauguration of Beit Hamikdash. He says there's going to be a time when this place won't be here, and you won't have this place for many days. I can't remember exactly where where internet it is, so this is not uh, an accident. Very good. By, by the way, this is an that, that, you know. you're correct. This is not an innovation of no. but the execution phase. The execution phase is that of Chachmisa. They took the, the initiative to actually make those changes that needed to be done in order to protect the Jewish people from what was bound to happen, unfortunately. You're correct, brother. This is something we planned for. Unfortunately, ever since we had a Benamikdash, we already knew it was going to be destroyed. The Tzedukim didn't really leave behind any writings of their own, so whatever we have about the Tzedukim, we've gleaned from other people that were surrounding them, and let's be honest that we're painting a picture of the Tzedukim from those who didn't really appreciate the Tzedukim. Josephus, if I mentioned him earlier, Josephus mentions some pretty nasty things about the Tzedukim. He writes, There's another group, second to the Essenes. And he mentions they're not that different from the rest of the Jews who are in Israel at the time, except in one way. Do you remember how he described the Essenes, their demeanor, their overall attitude towards other people? How did he describe them? They like secluded themselves. They were very um, extreme. They were secluded, but he mentions... He mentioned something positive about them and their inter, interpersonal relationships. Do you remember from last week? We'd, Monastic? Yeah, that's, uh, that's again part of their lifestyle. Maybe I'll clarify. They were very kind people. They were pious people to each other. They didn't run after money. They weren't hoarding things to themselves. They were taking care of other people. We mentioned this about these scenes. Josephus writes the exact opposite about the Siddokim. The tzedukim are difficult even to their brethren. And they greet people with a scowl. That's the face, an angry face. They're always walking around angry. And they treat their fellow Jews as if they are a foreign people from them. Yesterday I was on the news and I saw one of the leaders of the fanatical element in Jerusalem being interviewed by one of the Israeli TV show hosts. And this Israeli TV show host looks at this guy, calls himself a rabbi. He tells him, I, I, you're my brother. I don't want the fighting that we have here. And what does he tell him? He looks him straight in the face and says, please don't say that again. He says, please don't say what again? He says, please don't call yourself my brother. I want to have nothing to do with you, and I want you to have nothing to do with me. Just leave us alone. And that's a powerful statement. By the way, at least he's honest. He's honest that he doesn't want anything to do with anybody. But here the tzidukim are accused by Josephus of not being so kind. Ultimately, the conversation surrounding the tzidukim brings us to the writings of Chachmei Israel. And what do Chachmei Israel think about the tzidukim? We'll discuss in just a moment. In the New Testament, you'll find many mentions of the tzidukim. Uh, There's even debates between Yeshu and the Tzidukim. There's also debates there between the Tzidukim and the Pirushim. Yeshu is not a stranger to controversy nor to politics. And there's a famous scene in the New Testament, historic or not, accurate or not, in which he goes to the Benamikdash and he whips people and overthrows tables. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll understand what I'm speaking about. And he makes chaos over there, accusing them of caring only about money and everything else. Uh, But also, Yeshu is coming to show His power over the Temple Mount. This is again part of the power play that is going on in Jerusalem at that time. And the Tzedukim, who are these elite, removed, wealthy leaders of the Jewish community, are meeting their fate, ultimately at the hands of the Pharisees, who will discuss, Be'zad next week. For right now, I wanted to mention a few differences between the Rabbanim and the Tzidukim, so the first and the most famous difference between the Tzidukim and the Pirushim is that they don't believe in the Oral Law. That led to a very deep argument surrounding Sefirat HaOmer. Does anybody remember what I'm referring to? Yeah? It's whether you're not the Omer on the first day or on the second day, So, yeah I'll The Torah says that we count the Omer HaShabbat, from the day after the Shabbat. Our Rabbis have in tradition from Moshe that that Mimachorat HaShabbat means the day after the first day of Pesach. So Pesach is on a Monday, so Tuesday will be the first day of the Omer. The Tzidukim who are in control of the Hamikdash they understand Mimachorat HaShabbat literally from the day after Shabbat. Why? Because according to them, Shavuot, which is at the end of the seven weeks from when you start counting Sivirat HaOmer, must fall out on a Sunday. And because of that, they don't count after the first day of Pesach. They count after the first Sunday after Shabbat. One of the major arguments between the Chachamim, you might think it's not such a big deal, it has a lot to do with agriculture and other things that are going on in the Bet mikdash and freeing crops and everything else that might happen there. There's other conversations about the Kohen Gadol and what he used to do on Yom Kippurim, and uh, pretty much every detail that has to do with rabbinic law versus what you might see as just a strict Tzeduki, a uh, uh, literal understanding of the Torah. They don't believe in many of the rabbinic inventions such as Eruvim, uh, Eruv HaTzerot. There's a famous scene, I think it's a Masechet uh, for sure it's Masechet I think it's, this is the scene that I'm thinking of, uh, in which... The rabbis are coming to the Ben-Mikdash and they had left their Lulavim and Etorgim inside of the Ben-Mikdash. They wouldn't have to bring them outside from, on Shabbat. Uh, and what happened is that the, the, they're met on the way up to the Ben-Mikdash with the Tzedukim pelting them with Etorgim. Essentially, they stone them with Etorgim. And these relations are pretty terrible. There's a very famous dispute among the Tsidukim and the Chachamim. The Chachamim believe that we have a mitzvah of Nisuch HaMayim, of the water offering. The water offering in the Bet which we offer on which holiday? Sukkot. Sukkot. The whole Simchat, the the celebration of the Bet HaMikdash, of going to the well springs and bringing water to the Bet HaMikdash, the Tzidukim didn't believe in this at all. What kind of a thing is it to offer water to Akadosh Baruch Hu? And this is why in the eyes of the Pirushim, that whole celebration of Simchat B'te has so much importance. This is the Chachamim conquering the Ben Dash from those who don't allow them to be there. And this leads to, you know, what's the most famous Jewish song, perhaps, around this episode? It's a very famous Ashkenazi tune. What was everything that about water for? Now, for sure, this was appropriated by the early Zionist movement in terms of agriculture. But this song is a victory song of the rabbis over... The the in which they're celebrating the offering of the water in the benedict. Now that I've shared what I've shared, let's together look at the source sheet that I handed out to you. Me get some water. The source sheet says Sadducees on top, so it's attached to the Google Classroom uh, or to the Zoom invitation, whichever you're gonna find it. Much of this part of the shiul, it took from the writings of Rabbi Dr. Benjamin Lau. I'm not a student of his, nor do I belong to that at all, but there are some pretty uh, wise and brilliant things that he shares in his books, Our Sages. I highly recommend them for those who wish to understand better this entire time period in Jewish history. So we in Prakavot, and source 1 on page 1. It's the third Mishnah in Prakavot. This is the beginning of the, the teachings of our rabbis that are collected in this work, in this Mishnah in Prakavot. Antigonus, ish Socho, ben Shimon Antigonus, from Soho, Soho is a place, you know, Stan, receives in tradition from Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the righteous. Shimon HaTzadik, if you recall, let's put it in somewhere in, in history, Shimon HaTzadik is the one who saves the Ben Mikdash from the Samaritans last week. Remember with Alexander the Great and the rabbi, he sees in the dream, that's Shimon HaTzadik. So this is the next, the next student after that. He used to say, Don't be like servants who serve their master in order to receive a reward. Rather, you should be like servants who serve your master, who don't want to see a reward at all. Vihi Mora shamayim Alechem, let the fear of heaven be upon you. You should know that this theology that Antigonus Ishtocha introduces to the Jewish community is met with a tremendous amount of controversy, not just in his time, but generations afterwards. And it's beyond the scope of today's Shi'u to deal with this um, rewardless service of Akadosh B'chu. But it's very crucial to understand this teaching because he essentially gives birth to the tzedukim and the sects that come out of that and in order to understand that we must understand this mishnah a little bit better what does it mean to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not to receive a reward so why else should I serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu? what other reason is there to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu? a love a love for HaKadosh Baruch Hu? very good there's a certain kind of love well. what else Though if you look at the end of the sentence he says So he actually doesn't say love, he talks about fear Yeah, yeah Which is interesting Very good but A that, sense of duty, maybe A sense of? Duty Duty So have, you know when a child, they ask you for something and you give it to them You normally demand that they say thank you Say thank you, say please Why say thank you? What do you care if they don't say thank you? The, they take it for granted. the right way is that I'm an arrogant person who needs you to say thank you. No, you're teaching them to show gratitude. But I'm helping, yeah. I'm helping my child. I'm, I want to do this good thing. You do it for his will, no? What? You do it because it's his will. That's, huh? right, that's right. So then why do I need a thank you? Because you teach him me those. Well, because that's as well. well, that's exactly. See, Antigmas Ishtocho is essentially telling you, serve HaKadosh Baruch even if He doesn't say thank you. There's a certain level of service of the Creator that is not petty. It doesn't revolve around, oh, if I do this, then I'll get that. And if I don't do this, I'll get that. To stop serving HaKadosh Baruch in such a juvenile fashion. To serve HaKadosh Baruch because you know that the best thing for you to do is to serve HaKadosh Baruch even if it means that you won't get anything from it. There's a famous story about the Baal Shem Tov. And by the way, this story is appropriated both by the Chasidim and the Mitagdim. I'll tell you both versions of it, and they're too similar to have been a mistake, which normally tells me the story probably didn't happen in the first place. But the Baal Shem Tov, one of his students came to tell him that in Vilna they said about him that he doesn't have a portion in the world to come. And the Bashemdov started singing and dancing and he was so happy. They asked him, Why are you so happy? This is a terrible thing for someone to say about you. He said, My whole life I wanted to fulfill this Mishnah. My whole life I wanted to serve Akalah Bahu for no reward. Now that I know that I'm not gonna go to the next world, now I'm finally serving Akalah Bahu without a reward. The same thing they tell by the Lithuanians, though the Gaon of Vilna doesn't seem to be dancing so much in the story. Uh, rather, the story is the Gaon of Vilna needs a lulav and a tog, and he's unable to find that lulav and a tog. and finally they manage in a strange sale to get him a lulav and a tog, on condition that the Gaon of Vilna won't get any of the mitzvot, but he'll transfer the mitzvot to the person who sold the lulav and a tog. And the students were very worried, maybe he wouldn't agree, they finally agreed to the conditions, brought the lulav and a to their rabbi, and the Vilna Gon was so happy, He said his whole life he was waiting to do a mitzvah and not receive any reward for it. And now he's finally able to fulfill a mitzvah and not get any reward for it. It's an unusual teaching because it's very difficult to justify this teaching in any of the texts of the Torah. (laughs) Look throughout the Torah. Hashem says, If you follow in my way, X, Y, Z will happen to you. if you don't, ABC is going to happen. Malachi, the prophet, tests the Jewish people and tells them, I want you to see, offer your things to HaKadosh Baruch and let's see who HaKadosh Baruch doesn't reward. Meaning he's sure that HaKadosh Baruch is going to reward people. It's a very unusual teaching for someone who believes in the Torah to tell the Jewish people to serve HaKadosh Baruch without any type of reward because the Torah is full of conversations surrounding rewards. And then that qualifying statement at the end. So what Elina says, at first glance you would say, he's asking you to love HaKadosh Baruch so much that you serve Hakadosh Baruch Hu out of love, but then, as the Rabbanit points out, at the end there's a like a it's a twist. and the fear of heaven should be on you, the awe of heaven should be on you. What kind of name is Antignos for a good Jewish boy? What? He's a convert. He's a convert. Most likely he's not a convert. Yeah. Antigonus is born in the Amisrael. Where does he get the name Antigonus? Look, Shimon HaTzadik, Moshe Yehoshua, why Antigonus? What kind of name is Antigonus? Probably Romans. At this period of time, we're not dealing with the Romans. Greeks? The Greeks, it's a Greek name. It's a Greek name. How does the Chacham and the Jewish people get agreed? And by the way, there's this whole mess about people. This is inspired by a certain group that I mentioned earlier, but I'm not going to say directly. About which name of a person do you pray for? You want to mention somebody by the Torah, you want to give them an aliyah, tell me your Hebrew name so I can call you up to the Torah. What does it mean, a Hebrew name? I have a Hebrew name, so I'm not, I'm not here to offend anybody. But what does it mean, a Hebrew name? A Jewish person has to have a Hebrew name. Does a Jewish person have to have a Hebrew name? I thought that was one of our merits. That we, that we kept we did, okay. Yeah, correct. Antigonus Ish Soho. He didn't have a Hebrew name. By the way, when you pray for somebody, you're supposed to mention their name? Been mine, yes. Are you supposed to mention the name of somebody when you pray for them? Let's clear up Jewish myths once and for all. Where? Where do you find such a thing in the Torah? Tell me in the Torah, an episode, in which somebody prays for somebody else to have a fuhah shalimah. No, just find Miriam. It's a lot of fun. Love... Oh, very good. Moshe who prays for Miriam, and he just says, Hashem, heal her. Hashem, heal her. From here, our rabbis learn, though those of you who are familiar with the teaching, that you don't have to mention somebody's name. Rather, rather, have it in mind. You just have to pray for a person. Even if you don't know their name, you pray for them. HaKadosh B'Chu already knows who to pray for. So people say, you know, I can't pray for somebody. You don't have the Hebrew name. Hashem won't answer the prayer. HaKadosh <inaudible> B'Chu doesn't know what it says in your driver's license. Your name is, I don't know, whatever name it is. Stephen or, or, or uh, I don't know, give it a, George. or whatever, whatever, you know, HaKadosh B'Chu doesn't know who you are. But suddenly HaKadosh B'Chu doesn't know anything anymore. There are stories about Hasidic Rebbes. They send back papers. I'm sorry, I can't pray for that name. That's not your mother's right name. What kind of Jewish name is Mary? For a, but Mary is a Persian Jewish name, just for the record. M-E-H-R-I. It's a name. It has an H in it, so you pronounce it. If you, I don't have a good Farsi pronunciation. But how dare you tell somebody it's not a Jewish name when Jewish people have this name? And there's even, a, if you want to go into the realm of Kabbalah, According to Kabbalah, which I'm not a Kabbalist, but let's just throw it in there for everybody who insists on Jewish names and Hebrew names and praying for people with their names. According to Kabbalah, if you pray for somebody with their name in front of them, you might actually damage them. You Heard what I'm telling you now? There's a Khatam Sofer like that, there's a Zohar like that. The reason why people have problems in the first place, according to the Me'kubalim, may have something to do with the name they have. That's why when people get very sick, they change their name, correct? Why? Because their name has something to do with whatever's going on in their life according to this group of teachings. So actually, when you pray for someone, you shouldn't mention their name at all. I'm sure they didn't teach us that in Hebrew school when they told us about the importance of having Hebrew names. And who told you about having the importance of Hebrew name? Rabbi Mendel, Rabbi Clonimus, Rabbi Sprinza. Who told you you have to have a Hebrew name? All of those names are not Jewish. They're not Hebrew. For sure they're not Hebrew. Jewish, maybe. And anybody else who would or name their child Sprinza if they didn't hate them? What about Antigonus? I mean, is he okay. guilty? Is he guilty of not having a Hebrew name? He's an exception, maybe? Aren't there exceptions from the norm? Or uh, particular exceptions Hold on, wait, Mord, you just brought something even better. How many of the names in the Tanakh are repetitious, as opposed to their being invented by the parents as the child is being born? Hmm. So is, is it really a Jewish name in the beginning? We make them Jewish. We make them Jewish, Very good, but you have the answer that you need right now. I just ask that when it comes to persecuting people for their names, it, it, l- if anything, to also, if, if it, Greek, we're to write a Greek direct, or Maybe Greek is, a, it, is an exception to me. If anything, Greek should be worse because Greek is a, is a uh, Rabbi, say you can't even study Greek. Of all the wisdoms, the Greek wisdom you can't study. Uh, we find the name Alexander. Uh, yes. I have Alexander in the shoe right now. Alexander is a Jewish name. You know how many Chachamim were named Alexander? I'm saying, so the, we had some Greek, uh, so that's what I'm telling you. Antigonus, Yishocho, most likely Antignos's parents were part of the Jews that were assimilating into Greek culture. How do you get a name like Antigonus? Here one of our greatest hachamim is born into a family that probably today couldn't get their kids into yeshiva. And he's the only link in the chain to give us our Torah, so we needed Antignos, Ishtocho. And he never felt at any point in his rabbinic career that he had to sign up for a Hebrew name. Just for the record. So what is Antignos dealing with? He's dealing with his own family, his own community, his own world. The Jewish world is affected by Greek values. And if there's one value that is directly opposed to the value which Antignos is teaching in this Mishnah, it's what it's found in Kohelet and Ishayahu, and not in a positive sense, by the way. But I wrote here Elohim with a, a hey, so I ask that you keep this paper uh, safe because this one cannot, unfortunately, go to the trash or anything like that. It was a mistake. ani et asher tov Says Kohelet. You're it? Says Kohelet. I therefore praised enjoyment. For the only good a man can have under the sun, is to eat and to drink and to be happy. And this will accompany him throughout the days of life that Hashem has given him on earth. Yishayel also mentions... The terrible things will happen to the Jewish people for following this mentality in in 3, source 3. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now if you Google that sentence, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, there's a famous Greek philosopher that pops up. Anybody know his name? Epicurus. Epicurus. You've heard of him before? You ever heard of the word uh, epicurus in Hebrew? Yes. Uh, they call him an epicurus. Yeah. Uh, what is this word? Epicurus. Epicurus. This man, this was essentially his philosophy. He wanted to boil it down into eat and drink and be merry. And I know that I'm oversimplifying a complicated person. I'm just saying that this philosophy of eat and drink for... an understanding of this. Alexander Benashe, I accept that. I accept, by the way, that I'm oversimplifying his, uh, this philosophy. And you should know that when looking for this quote in the writings of Epicurus, you won't find it because it's not ever said that way, at least not intended to be said that way. But that's definitely how people have walked away. Uh, this is a, they call it the Epicurean motto, if I'm not mistaken. This is what they'll refer to it in the modern world. Antigonus Ish Socho is dealing with a world that says, eat and drink because there's no reward. There is no tomorrow. There is no Olam Haba. There is no reward and consequence. There is no reason for you to do mitzvot. It's all a farce. You're going to wake up one day and you'll just be dead. And then you'll say there's nothing happening after life. So why did you spend so much time not eating your favorite fruit? Why do you spend so much time learning Torah? Why do you spend so much time doing mitzvot? There's no reason for it. Why does Antignos Ishtocho deal with this? Because unfortunately, this philosophy plagues his own Ben Midrash. Look at me in source four in Avot DeRabina Avot Dirbinatan de is a book that very similarly represents the uh, Avot, and its style and content. The first part is very similar to Perkei Antignos Antigonus kibel tzadik. Antigonus, the man of Soho, receives from his rabbi, Shimon Sadiq. This is source 4. He used to say, That you should be like servants who serve their master, not to receive a reward. And the fear of heaven should be on you. And then he continues one sentence we don't have in Preke Avot. So, you should receive a double compensation in the future, a double reward in the future. And then, Avod Rabbinatan continues to tell us the next story. Look at the top left on page one Antignos had two students that they would study his words, meaning they were very meticulously analyzing his teachings. And they would teach those words to the other students. And those students would teach that to the next group of students. So these were very close disciples of Antigonus Ish Soho, that they were teaching the other students, and those students would teach to the next level of students they analyzed this sentence of Antigonus Yishtocho very closely and they reached the following conclusion, and they said, Why did our forefathers, meaning Antigonus Yishtocho, why did he say such a thing? Could it be that a worker is going to work the whole day and he's not going to ask for his compensation at the end of his work? Rather, if our forefathers would have known, if they were aware that there was another world, and they would have believed that there was revival of the dead, resurrection of the dead, they would never say such a thing. Meaning, why did our forefathers tell us to serve Hashem as if you don't receive a reward? It's unjust. Why should I serve not to receive a reward? way, you should know, I... I belong to a number of different groups of rabbis. One of the groups uh, of rabbis I belong to is a wonderful interdenominational group of rabbis and people in different places in the world. And in the early parts of the pandemic, there were a number of rabbis who told their communities that, you know, struggling communities, they're not going to accept salaries because it's not fair to put the community through trying times. And this rabbi, I was very impressed with him. He told his community he's not going to take a salary for the duration of the pandemic because it's not fair that an already struggling community that doesn't meet regularly, that doesn't, it's not fair that he should take money from them. And I was like, wow, that's an impressive rabbi. Until I read the flip side of the story. And that was he told his community that because he's no longer accepting a salary, listen carefully, it's immoral for him to teach them Torah classes And it's immoral for him to officiate at their life cycle ceremonies because it's immoral for a person to work for no compensation. Now, I guess in some way that makes sense. If you got a job somewhere, you'd ask for someone to pay you for it. I remember reading this article and as much, I was like, wow, look, it's a rabbi who doesn't take money from people, wow. And then I saw the flip side, it doesn't take money, it doesn't help anybody either. What kind of rabbi is that? I couldn't believe it. So is it, is it moral for a person to work and not ask for compensation afterwards? Rather, it must be that our forefathers knew there is no next world, there is no resurrection of the dead, and because of that, they told us what they told us. torah. They stood up and separated themselves from the Torah. And out of them came two breaches in the wall of Israel. Tzedukim, Uvaytusin, the tzedukim and the baytusim. I think in English they called baytusim both the sin, I don't know how to pronounce this word, maybe you know how to say it better than me. Look it up in your encyclopedia. Tzedukim al shum tzedok, baytusin al shum baytus. There were two houses of of kohanim that were students of Antignus Yisrocho. One name was tzedok, tzedok was a kohen gedol, and Baitus, was also a kohen and these two groups came forth from those respective individuals and that's why they're called tzedukin and baitusin. by the way the tzedukin deny this story happening exactly the way it happens but for our intents and purposes we're understanding Hattik Nosh in and his rabbinic teachings this is the understanding of Chachamim of what happened here and they would use silver and gold utensils their whole life meaning they would indulge in this world They never felt bad about this. They were arrogant people. And the Tzidukim would mock the Pharisees. And they would say, Oh, the Pharisees have a tradition. That they suffer in this world. And they're only going to be surprised in the next world. These Pharisees who have all these rules, they're going to wake up in the next world. They didn't eat. They didn't drink. They didn't indulge. They weren't merry." They're going to wake up in the next world and realize there is no next world, and the tzedukim would mock Chachmei Sla'in. But where did the tzedukim come from, according to our rabbis? Who takes the blame for creating the tzedukim? Our rabbis. Our rabbis take the blame. Antignos creates tzedukim and Baitusim. Now the Beitusim, by the way, are an interesting group. If you want to research them. Our rabbis referred to tzedukim and Baitusim almost synonymously. Now, they may, may or may not be the same groups. As I mentioned to you earlier, we don't have independent writings from neither, either of those groups. But these different groups of people are very similar, maybe with one difference. And that is the tzedukim were known to be very arrogant, ruling class type kohanim. And the Baitusim had a little more of a knack for people. They were closer to the people, they they were a little more um, community oriented, less indulgent perhaps than the tzedukim. But again, those are all theories. Our rabbis use these things interchangeably. Our rabbis see the tzedukim as a little more militant than the Baitusim who are just non-rabbinic, but not necessarily as militant as the tzedukim are. Both of them create problems for the rabbis. And essentially, the main part of where this shows up is when it comes to announcing the new month of the new Rosh Chodesh and uh, the Tzedukim start to pay people to go give false testimony in the rabbinic courts and this creates a whole disaster and that sets the precedent for rabbinic courts only accepting testimony from people that they consider to fit into a certain criteria of ne'manim, people that we trust. Until then, every Jewish person came to give testimony with testimony. Now there's a very strict criteria who do we accept in a bedin to give testimony over what? So I would say that if you zoom out for a moment and you look at these tzidukim and baitusim, there's a danger. There's a danger in the world of. Torah that is full of love. By the way, here, here I am sure that some of the Bible-thumping preachers in the world, and the Jewish world, would be very happy to hear what I have to say. The danger of love of Hashem, is that if I love Hashem and I'm close to Hashem and everything is good with Hashem, then, uh, you know, who cares about mitzvot so much? There's a certain closeness to Kadosh Baruch Hu when, hey, Akashu was my father, Kadosh was my parent, who loves me, Kadosh loves me, then he doesn't really care that I keep Shabbat or I eat kosher. I just saw today an ad, a targeted ad on Facebook. It said, you know, you eat bacon, don't worry, God has better things to worry about. Join us for our Passover Seder. And it was uh, some fascinating ad of, you know, God doesn't care that you eat bacon. You no, know, if God didn't care, he wouldn't tell you not to eat bacon. Nonetheless, there is a certain mentality that is born out of over love of Hashem. You love Hagalosh Hu too much, and that leads to a certain, uh, um, uh, rifuf, I don't know a word in English, a certain lack of care, of particularity in mitzvot. And so, what does Antignos Ish Socho write at the end of his teaching? At the end of his teaching, he adds one sentence, Vayhi Mora Alechem, that there should always be fear of heaven on you. Don't get so close to HaKadosh Baruch and you see this in any way of your life. It's parents with children, it's students and teachers, it's managers and employees or whatever context it is. There's a very fine balance between keeping a distance and creating a certain type of awe, while not being too aloof and removed that people don't trust you. But also there's a danger of a person in a leadership position getting a little too close and a little too frivolous in front of people and then ultimately losing a matter, uh, level of authority. And Tignos is warning those who serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu out of love. You just love Hashem, that's why you serve Him, right? You're not doing it for a reward, you're not doing it for a mitzvah. The flip side is, that you must have awe of heaven. You must. Why? Because if you don't, if you don't, you won't fulfill any of the mitzvot. And essentially the pirushim, the pirushim are reacting. Who are they reacting to? The Pirushim are reacting to the sedukim, to the Yisim, to everything else that's going on. And the Pirushim create a new faith. And this new faith incorporates a tremendous amount in the Jewish community we say, Is he a Is she a, Does she have Yirat Do people have the awe of heaven? Why do we ask that? When we ask that question, what do we really mean? Are they observant of Torah Mitzvot? Do they have Yirat And this gives birth to God-fearing Jews. And God-fearing Jews are exactly the problem that we're dealing with today in our generation. It's exactly what the Pirushim were dealing with back then. If you look with me at source two, uh, page 2, source 5. The Gemara al-Masech writes, our Rabbi say, so the Mishnah mentions there's certain type of Pirushim, certain types of Pharisees that... This last parush is one who says, tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it. Says the Gemara, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with a Jewish person saying, tell me what the mitzvot are, I want to fulfill the mitzvot? What's wrong with that? Rather says the Gemara, this is someone who says, tell me what further obligations are required upon me, and I'll perform them. This is a person who's always looking for more mitzvot, and more mitzvot, and more mitzvot, which the Gemara seems to consider a negative character trait. The beraitah then adds the righteous due to love, the righteous due to fear. I didn't want to focus on these pilushim today. I want to focus today now on this last part of our shiul, on the commentary of Rabbi Benjamin Lau, on these seven types of pirushim. And I want you to think through with me all the different types of Orthodox Jews you have in the world today. The pilushim. By the way, I'm not here to hate on the Orthodox. Uh, All the Jews in the world have this problem, but certain groups more than others. The Talmud describes several different types of obsessive religious behaviors. This is page three, source six. We're all too familiar with these kinds of Pharisees in our everyday religious experience. The Sheikmi Pharisee, the one who acts to the banner of Shechem. What does that mean? That is the person whose actions are motivated entirely by his own benefit, such as the circumcision of the men of Shechem. Tell me that story, what happens? What's the story with the men of Shechem? where Shimon and Levi killed uh, all the men in Shechem very good after they uh, captured Dinah. so they captured Dina they raped Dina Shimon and Navi come to kill the city of Shechem but how do they get them to be weak in the first place? Know, so
1: they, they ask them
0: to circumcise very good they ask all the men to do a brit to circumcise themselves and they come in on the weakest day and they wipe them out my father-in-law he once told me from one Hasidic rabbi whose name I don't remember Why does Shimon Levi bother circumcising all the men before they killed them? And he said the answer is quite simple. He said the way that anti-Semitism works is if they were going to kill a whole bunch of rapists who were non-Jews, the world would scream, oh, human rights violations, all kinds of things. But now that they made them all Jewish and they converted them to Judaism with Brit Milah, now nobody cares if you massacre the whole city of Shechem afterwards. This is hardly need to, there's hardly need to even mention this type because all of his acts are purely for his own sake and not for the sake of heaven. They did a Brit that because they wanted to marry into the Jewish people. He may fulfill commandments with the very best Pharisees, but his motivations are entirely self-centered without any trace of godliness. How many Jewish people? They purport to be observant of Torah Mitzvot, but the underlying motivation for their Torah Mitzvot is to show off is to be part of a certain Jewish community, it's, it's a certain elitist attitude that they have over other Jewish people that are around them. Shikhmi. You're not fulfilling mitzvot because of the Kedosh Baruch Hu. You're fulfilling mitzvot because of yourself. You're fulfilling mitzvot to make yourself look good. By the way, this happens all the time. Chumot People have all kinds of stringencies they take on themselves for a different topic, a different class, and a different time. Why do you know about the Chumrot that people have in their personal life? Why do you know about them? How did you come to discover someone else's chumrah? They're telling you about it. That's right. Why are you telling me? If it's not required and it's extra and you do it because you're such a God-fearing person so just keep it to yourself. Why do I have to know about it? The only reason you tell me is to show off. You're serving yourself. You're not serving anybody else. Don't fool us into thinking that you're somehow more observant or more, you're just a person who likes to show up. The Nikfi Pharisee. Nikfi Pharisee? If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, Rabbi Badia and Moshe of Einstein that it's to perform a Very good. But this is a clown all across the Borna Halakha. Uh, but, but yes, the, performing a Chumrah in public, which is what you mentioned, has along with it the danger of essentially saying that everybody else is doing something wrong. It's mosilaz You're telling that all the chachamim that came before you, they didn't know what they were doing. Things that were good for all of Am Yisrael are no longer good for you. It's a tremendous, it's dangerous in the sense that you think you're so great at the cost of someone else. So for example, someone says, you know, in our house, we want to have three sinks One for meat and one for milk and one for paravit. And they come to my house to see that I, but I have two sinks in my house. But not because of me, I don't use, my, my sinks are both Bessari and together. Why do I have two? Because the Jewish people who lived before me in this house, they put in two sinks. So they used to say meat and dairy, I just took off the stickers that say meat and dairy, and today it's two sinks that are multi-purpose. But, now you come to my house, and you don't want to eat my food. Why? Because oh, the rabbi doesn't have two sinks. So is that a chumah, Or are you now in a situation where your chumah is how you throw people out of the Jewish nation? Your child says, oh, I can't play with you because my mommy said that you do X, Y, so well, then that's not a chumrah anymore. The fact that you're doing this chumrah publicly, that we even know about it, you're the problem. And that's right. Uh, Benji, you're correct. This is, this is the reason why we don't do chumrah in public, among other things. Moshe actually, Mosh actually writes in his Teshuvot, uh, when he writes in that he's against blended whiskey uh, for various reasons. But he also writes, it's very much that when he's at Tzimcha, he always has a cup of blended whiskey. You, you know, you don't have such rabbis anymore. So I have in my book, I have a story about Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld, Rabbi Shalom. Um, by the way, my wife's grandmother was raised by Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld. She was an orphan and he took her in. He was a chief rabbi of the Charedim in Yerushalayim. Essentially, uh, he came to a wedding, a Sephardic wedding, and there was some kind of meat. I don't recall what the deal was. It could have been that it was from the backside of the animal, where they did not cool. And they saw Rabbi Yosef Chaim eating the meat, and one of the rabbis, said, Rabbi, this is the meat, you can't eat it. He says, I'm at a Sephardic wedding, which Sephardic Talmud, they are my and they're eating this meat, how dare I sit here and not eat the meat as well? I mean, what? I don't eat it in my own house, that's fine, but here, how am I going to pretend it's not kosher? You don't have people like this, any, people with this kind of um, straightforward mind, you don't, you don't have them in the world anymore. That's Ali." The Nikfi Pharisee. So, who's the Nikfi? He's the guy who walks into things and blood sprays everywhere. One who knocks his feet on the ground. Why? This is the person who walks heel after toe. Let's just say heel as an H E E L. I was typing fast. Who avoids lifting his foot for fear of not finding where to tread. And so he drags one foot after the other, running his feet and going nowhere. This is a foot dragging, this is not the blood Pharisee, this is the Pharisee who's dragging his feet. This is a foot dragging religiosity based on fear, which brings a person and those around him to spiritual paralysis. Remember those words. Spiritual paralysis. Any innovation, any untrodden territory seems to him to be an impassable minefield. This kind of fear paralyzes. This is the Jew who's afraid of doing anything new, anything they didn't hear about before, anything that they, they don't want to be exposed, they're afraid, they're afraid of taking one foot forward because it's, un, it's uncharted territories, my rabbi didn't tell me, my mother didn't tell me, my, whoever it is that didn't tell me, they're stuck, they're frozen, and the problem is they're not frozen, they freeze everybody around them. You don't want to be from those who lead Ami Salah to the future, that's fine. But stop getting, you know, there's was a saying, my sister-in-law has a saying on her fridge, It says, those who say it cannot be done should get out of the way of those who are doing it. This is the same thing. These uh, Pharisees that are getting in the way because they're afraid of the future. This is the Kizai Pharisee. One whose blood spurts out on the walls. That's a pretty graphic image. What's his story? He averts his eyes from seeing evil. When he thinks he might see a woman in the street, he closes his eyes so that he bumps into walls injuring his head. I don't know about you, but I don't live anywhere where we have this type of Pharisee. But I don't know how the United Kingdom looks. But in Israel, those of you now joining the Shura from Israel, you are uh, full and full of such Pharisees that exist in the world. Every time they walk like that, what, because they can't see? They walk at the wall and their blood spurts everywhere. The description of the bleeding wound here is significant. In his attempt to avoid what he sees as a sin, this person is capable of shedding his own blood. Again, it's a typo. Such a Jew ends up bruised and wounded and his fearful approach is condemned. So ultimately what happens is in your search for piety, righteousness, you harm yourself. This type of piety, this type of righteousness, so it was self-harming, is dangerous. It's dangerous. And it's condemned by Chachmisa. Now you should know this is a classic case of the one who doesn't want to look at a woman. Uh, but here there's... Other issues, today in the world of Halakha, my wife is in the field of mental health. In the realm of Halakha today, there are new conversations being had about the place and the role. Anyone here in the mental health world? Anybody in the Shiwa? No? My wife stepped out. Oh, very good. Okay, so there's new conversations being had, there are new conversations being had about mental health in Halakha. So for example, Teshuvot about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And how that can translate into issues with people being overly particular in halakha, not out of a a genuine religiosity, but at a very dangerous mental issue that they're struggling with already. And sometimes systems of halakha can be very dangerous for a person who's struggling with OCD. How suicide is treated in halakha, those attitudes have changed over time, maybe slowly, but are being changed. Other issues, I'm not talking about stigmas and stereotypes, I'm talking about taking into account that negative side effects can happen from a religious experience. And those are to be condemned. this type of Pharisee is being condemned because the type of Torah he's bringing to the world is one that is self-harming. This is the pestle Pharisee. One whose head is bent in humility when he walks. This is the person whose sense of fear makes him want to simply disappear. I have a dear friend who every time he talks to me, he apologizes about something, always apologizing. But recently I spoke with him, he didn't have what to apologize for. he was trying to think what he could apologize for. I told him, I said, you don't have to apologize for existing, the first time you did nothing wrong ever, but you exist and you should exist and you, you should be here. Here is the person, the sheer weight of his overwhelming fear of heaven crushes any possible expression of his own personality. This kind of Pharisee reflects the type of excessive humility which leads to total self-negation. If I may, and I'm here speaking not politically correct, if I may, that this type of Pharisee is very often found in the world of Balei Teshuvah, those who are new to the religious experience. And the guilt, by the way, is not on them. The guilt is on those who teach them. It's a certain, you don't know anything, you you, you're, you might be 30, you might be 40, you might be 60, however old you are, you're now learning for the first time how to tie your shoes according to halakha. You don't even know how to go to the bathroom correctly. We have halachot about that. You should live in self-doubt your whole life. And that creates for a certain personality that is, especially one that is, is uh, um, intimidated by this type of teaching or this type of life, it creates for a very unhealthy experience in which I am almost... I just wish I wasn't here because I know that I can't follow Halakha properly. Everything I do, I think I'm doing something wrong. This is a terrible religious experience to go through. And there are people that teach people like this that they are responsible for teaching Torah this way, incorrectly. And if a person is ever experiencing this on their own personal religious experience, I ask that you reach out to somebody who's competent, who knows Halakha well, who understands you well, and can say, listen, slow down, calm down, everything's good. Harkas loves you. You're not messing up. Everything is, everything is fine. Let's go back and start over again. My wife, a number of years ago, had to do a refresher course on tarat and mishpacha. Because we found out that in the places in which we were, that tarat and mishpacha, family purity, was being taught in such a terrible, oppressive way. And I have no other words to use aside from those that people's relationships were being harmed every single day because of the way in which these halakhot were incorrectly taught to them. By the way, when you talk to some of the teachers of these halakhot and you wonder, they don't know anything either. So whoever taught the teacher doesn't know anything. And it ruins people's marriages. It ruins relationships with their families. It ruins all kinds of things. Sometimes you just have to stop and, hey, Whatever I did, if this is what it's bringing me to, if I become a pestle Pharisee, I'm the problem. I need to stop and fix it. What else should I do and I will do it? This is the, you ever heard of the Chumrah of the month club? These are those who always like to add new stringencies. Every time it's a, you know, I saw once last year, one of the rabbis, uh, someone who I respect, someone asked him a question, a halakha Pesach. I said, you know, there's a Chumrah, a new stringency going around. I said, I'm so happy when they come up with new stringencies. I get bored of the old ones from last year. I want some new ones. People make up new mitzvot all the time. All new, you, want, you want to see new mitzvot? I'm not speaking to denigrate any Tamikram. The laws of Lashon Hara in the Rambam. Anybody know how many halachot are in the Rambam's laws of Lashon Hara? How complicated is the topic of Lashon Hara? The Rambam has eight halachot. I think it's eight. So it's eight sentences, which summarize all the laws of Lashon Hara. Harav Peretz, by the way, claims it's a little too long. He has five sentences, which summarize all of the halakhot of Lashon Hara. And then, ala Shalom, a blessed memory, you see the Chavetz Chaim, volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of Lashon Hara. And you wonder to yourself, how does that happen? How does it happen that in the Shulchan Aruch, Maran has barely a chapter, talking about the laws of Asher Yatzar, the blessing that you say after you go to the restroom. And when I was in Israel a few years back, I showed my wife in the bookstore three-volume books, not little books, thick books, three volumes, Hilchot Asher Yatzar. How, how complicated is it in the restroom that you don't know the bracha, the, what has to happen exactly for you to need to say this bracha properly? Hilchot Ketubot, the laws of contract. I got a special ordination, Hilchot Ketubot. How much you? Rambam, Talmud. I saw a series. I think my mom wanted to buy me a, a set of books. My mom learned a long time ago that that's the only thing I need is gifts and books. This eight—it's an eight-volume set of books on the laws of Ketubot. It's a waste of paper. It's a waste of ink. It's a waste of shelf space. Eight volumes on Ketubot. How could it be? So here we have an entire group of Jews, one who is obsessed with fear constantly looking for more strictures to obey. He can never relax because he's convinced that there must always be some additional obligation, some new stricture, some new task. There must be something more he can do to improve his worship. He wants to achieve religious perfection, but only feels a sense of his own imperfection. This kind of obsession can create tremendous tension and social pressure. When my wife and I got married, we had some interesting conversations. Interesting conversations because the way in which my wife was raised and the way that I was raised and more correctly, the way in which I was educated after being raised, they don't always line up with each other. One great example, Pesach. I'm not talking about here kosher without symbols and labels. I'm not talking about any of that. How long does it take for a person to make their house? house? How long should it take a person? I guess it depends how large your house is, right? But how long? What? A few hours. A few hours. hours. You want to be strict? Take a day. I'm inventing something? Chachmei Israel instituted that you should search your house for chametz how many weeks before Pesach? The night before Pesach. Very good, Betsy. That's correct. The night before Pesach, you're supposed to search your house for Pesach. By the way, for those people who've cleaned their house already from Purim, so Purim time, you don't clean your house anymore. Uh, there's no more chametz in your house. It's done. You're done. By the time Pesach rolls around, all that's in the refrigerator is potatoes and eggs and no, no, carrots. That's all that's all that's left in the refrigerator. So what's, what's, in the, what's in the night before Pesach? What do you do? When you make a Beracha, I am coming to check my house for Pesach, for chametz, And you know there's no chametz in your house. You're making a Beracha Levatala. You're saying God's name in vain. Because there's no chametz here. There's no chametz to be found. So what do people do? They take all kinds of little, you know, bread crumbs and they scatter them all around the house and they play a game with the hide and go seek. They know where they put them, they go search for them, and it's a nice game, but it doesn't fulfill any kind of halakha. You may have a blessing on that. You're guilty of saying Hashem's name in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You live in a world where people can never just say, wow, I'm done. This is before Pesach. I'm done. I have nothing more to do. Everything is okay. Let me just sit back and relax. Ere Pesach. And let me go, go to the beach. And let me go out. Whatever you want to do. Go have a good time. How much do you have to prepare or ready for Shabbat? All the rules and all the people have lists, checklists of things they have to do before Shabbat starts. And then all of Friday becomes a nightmare for children, for spouses. Everyone stays out of each other's way because anybody is a ticking time bomb might explode at them right before Shabbat. You live in a Jewish world where people can never just do enough. It's never enough. Always needs to be something bigger, something better, something stricter. And this creates, this kind of obsession can create tremendous tension and social pressure. Summarizes Rabbi Ben Yilau. The common factor in all of these is a nervous, neurotic kind of religiosity. Grounded in the basest type of fear and which fails to help a person attain any spiritual elevation at all. This, I think, is the best sentence that was out of this whole packet. A neurotic kind of religiosity, which fails to help a person attain any spiritual elevation at all. There are some people who are incorrect. They're misguided. And they think that the reason why we do what we do at Shiviti is to make everything easier for everybody, to make life simple because we don't care about mitzvot, because we don't care about Torah, because we don't care about this or the next thing. The exact opposite is true. If we could free the Jewish people from the halachic neurosis which they suffer from, if we could free the Jewish community from doing all kinds of things they're not obligated in and to channel that energy to things that are important, that are valuable, that do lead a person on higher spiritual paths. If before Pesach, instead of being on your knees, like someone that I'm related to, and scratching in between the floor tiles with a toothbrush to get out any morsel of chametz in the, I don't know what you call that stuff between the tiles. Uh, There's a word for it, with a G. Grout, thank you very much. You know, they say that, when I moved to Israel, they said, it's not that you're going to learn uh, more Hebrew. You're just going to forget your English. That's all the time. I never recovered from that. So the grout, scrubbing the grout. What can be in the grout? So what happens? It comes time for the Pesach seder. And she, I can't sit anymore. My back hurts. My knees hurt. I'm so tired. Let's rush. I, I want to go to sleep. All these deaths are coming. You're Pesach seder. It's your highest night of the year. L'el <laughs> l'el it's the, the most precious night of the calendar, that Kadosh Baruch And what happens? Most Jews are too tired. They're too, they're too worn out to even experience the al Pesach. In my community, a long time ago, I pushed. And Baruch Hashem, you should know, the ladies in my community are at tzadikot. Every one of them, better than the next. I said, it doesn't make sense that you're going to work hard for weeks and weeks and weeks it comes time for the most important tefillah the night time of Pesach we say Hallel in the Beda and where are you? you're busy cutting up karpas and putting out salt water or whatever else you're doing in your house for who? for all those guests that are coming to your house they don't pay your bills they don't help you clean your house they don't do anything why don't you come to the Beda Knesset and pray like a human being you're also Jewish, no? In the Maiki Hila, on the nights of Chagim, the night of Shabbatot, Ba'u Hashem, men and women are here. Everybody's praying because your guests are not good enough for you to lose out on your spiritual experience. So we're making it easy for people? Yeah, maybe. We're freeing up people's lives to allow them to indulge in the real parts of Avodah Hashem, in the real parts of service of the Creator, of the Baruch Hu. And I think that this shift has to happen. The Tzedukim have given birth to the opposite. If they didn't care about mitzvot at all, they gave birth to a type of Judaism that cares about mitzvot too much. What do you mean too much? It's a dangerous thing to say. You have a Talmud, you have a Rambam, you have a Shulchan Aruch, why do you keep looking for new halachot? Why do we need that? The Shulchan Aruch is not good enough for us? We're not able to just do Pesach the way it was, to do Purim the way it was supposed to be, the way Shavuot and Sukkot, the way it was supposed to be, Shabbat the way it was supposed to be, Kashrut the way it was supposed to be. Tarat and the way it was supposed to be. We're so obsessed with making our lives difficult, all in the name of a Bahu. So then our children hate a Bahu, our wives hate a Kadosh our husbands hate a Bahu, our communities hate a Bahu, and then we spend millions of dollars. It's like a vicious cycle. We spend millions of dollars on outreach organizations, and seminaries, and yeshivot, because the, the whole generation of Jews who hate God, we send them back to those same people who made the first generation and they educate them all over again to do all the same mistakes all over again. So the next generation will hate HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the communal will hate HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the children will hate HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it's a vicious cycle over and over and over and over again. And when is someone just going to say, stop, stop. We're pushing. Yeah, we're separated from the world. We have our own Torah, our own mitzvot, but there's a limit. HaKadosh Baruch has told you exactly what you need to know to live a happy and content life. And if I may end with the teaching of Rabbi Yudan Levi, Rabbi Yudan Levi was asked once by the king of Khuzar in this, you know, famous conversation in the book of the Kuzari, about why a person like him tries so hard to fulfill mitzvot. And he said, "The only freedom I ask for in my life, enanim vakesh kim hashibud achirut." The only freedom I ask for is freedom from the slavery of society. He said, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave me 613 commandments. I know exactly what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants me to do on Shabbat. I know exactly what wants me to do on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday. I know exactly how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants me to treat my children and my spouse and my parents. I know everything. I know exactly how to make HaKadosh Baruch Hu happy. When it comes to society, when it comes to people, when it comes to the Jewish community, it says the David, it never ends. It's a bottomless pit. You will never make them happy, no matter what you do. They won't be happy with you. This is the only freedom I ask for: is the freedom from the servitude to society. Let me just serve Hakadosh Baruch Hu, because Hakadosh Baruch Hu is honest with me. I know exactly what I need to do, exactly what I cannot do, and that type of freedom is the most freeing spiritual experience a person can have. This is a double-edged coin to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to fear HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Those two things balance each other out. And the number one thing that a Jewish person needs in their life, any person needs in their life, is balance. But especially when it comes to something as dangerous as spirituality, as religion, which can very quickly become imbalanced, very quickly, to one direction or the other. The person must always go back to a place of balance, to find that middle ground. Because, next week we'll continue on the list with Bishem Tov Gagin Siu. Uh, But for today, I just want to thank you for your time, for being here, for learning with me. And God willing, I will stick around for anybody who has any questions or comments or anything else they wish to discuss after the Shi'u today.